Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Skylar Adams. I am the RUF uh, campus minister here at ECU, and I'm really excited uh, to open God's Word uh, with you uh, and to serve you in this way and to see what sort of damage I can cause in Dave's absence. Um, any accusations to be leveled against this sermon, may they also go to Chad, who has all over what you're about to receive uh, this morning from God's, God's Word. Uh, if, as you have been with us for many months, and if this is your first time in some time, it's likely a reminder that you know that Dave and Chad are going through a series where they're looking at uh, every single book of the Bible. Uh, it's a series through the Bible, and if that makes you tired, that's okay. And with it, what they're trying to do is help us to see why God's people have always seen that above any other way that we could view the Bible, it is fundamentally a true story, a story of God creating all things, our sin breaking all things, Christ fixing all things, and that one day everything will be made new. This is the story of the scriptures, and we're trying to see that, trying to make our life make sense in light of it as we journey all the way through it. Well, the last two weeks, Dave has taken a break and he's gone to the, to the, to the Psalms, I guess to keep us from getting too bogged down into the minor prophets. Well, we're back at them this morning. And I was reading a commentator uh, this week who described the minor prophets as the dark continent of our Bible. The dark continent. What, what did he mean by that? Well, I think a few things, right? It, it's mysterious, right? Not really sure what's going on in, the, in that section of the Bible. Maybe it's redundant. You hear the same theme, same sorts of words over and over. Maybe if you're new to Christianity, you're on the edge of it, thinking about it for the first time. You, you hear some of the words of the minor prophets, and they, they seem so harsh. What makes it a dark continent? Well, I think if we don't see the Bible as this four-part story that's absolutely true, a story of God creating and redeeming and restoring a people in a place, they'll never make sense. They'll never be situated as they should. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk and with his voice, see what it looks like to be part of this four-part story. So we've got selected verses uh, this morning. Uh, they'll be up on the screen. If you have a copy of the Bible, please follow along. I'll, I'll try to uh, make mention of when we're changing chapters and verses and this sort of thing. Um, it's a short book, um, but I'm hoping that we can get we can receive bits and pieces from each chapter so that we understand the message that we've been given this morning. Friends, this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and we have it because he loves us. Hear God's word this morning, beginning in chapter one. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, verse two. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Verse 5 is the Lord's response 
to Habakkuk's complaint. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For I am, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity, that's a joke, literally, go forth from themselves. Skipping ahead to Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The Lord's response in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? For still the vision awaits its appointing time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Chapter three. This is the last segment here. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Then moving down to verse 12. This is, uh, this is till uh, Habakkuk's voice. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. The very end, hang in there, we're almost finished. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is God's word, let's pray. Hey Father, thank you for giving us life this morning, help us to see Jesus, in your word, Spirit of God, would you 
bear, bear Jesus to be true through these words. Would you be at work in your word and in our hearts to help him to see him, to help him to grasp hold of him, help us to see of his grasp upon us, increase our faith in the, in, in the pain of our circumstance. Help us to see that you're a God who goes after his people and through Christ we have been bought. Lord, help us to see him this morning. We need your help, all of it. It's in your name that we pray, amen. I wanna introduce you to a new old friend, Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a rather obscure prophet. In fact, his, his name is a loan word from another language. We're not even so sure how to say it, although I can't think of another way to say it, Habakkuk. We know next to nothing about him other than that he's called a prophet. That seems to be the way the Lord works. We do know some historical context. He was probably contemporary to Jeremiah, and he lived in an awful period of time. Likely the last 40 or so years of uh, God's kingdom in, in the south, Judah. About 40 years before the Babylonians would ultimately uh, lay siege upon the city and take the remaining Israelites captive. He saw violence, destruction, he saw oppression, he saw some of the worst forms of evil. And yet there's something about Habakkuk that makes his prophecy very unique. Very unique among the scriptures and very unique among the prophets in our Bible. You see, unlike most prophets that receive a word from God that, that likely like through their conscience or, or sometimes in a vision like this, it's then given to whom? God's people. The prophecy of Habakkuk is a conversation between God and his man. Our God lets us see and preserves for his people his prophet complaining, lamenting, and he responding. You see, our prophecy opened up with like, and this oracle he saw. The point there is, is, is not that there was something unique in the fact that he saw it. What's being conveyed is there is an intensity and intimacy. It's as if Habakkuk has been swept up to the throne room of God and he's having this conversation. And we get to listen in. And we get to learn. And we get to see. Habakkuk is likely uh, prophesying after the time of an awful king whose name was Manasseh one of the most notorious kings that God's people had ever seen, whose leadership had literally sealed the fate of God's people. No form of repentance was going to fix the sort of idolatry and abominations that he had led God's people into. In other words, Habakkuk is an anguished man. And that's what this prophecy talks about. As we think about the story of this messenger of this prophecy, what, what, we're, what we glimpse is, is the story, the personal journey of God's prophet struggling to believe that God is good when there's so much evil and tragedy in the world. Have you ever been there? Has that ever been your story? Have you thought to yourself, how could a good God allow this to happen both in my life and outside of my life? This is the story of Habakkuk. Can you relate? This is who he was. Let's talk about what his conversation with God was like. 
And I'll, I'll follow the pattern that if you've been around, uh, Dave and Chad have been doing, we'll, we'll sort of rehearse the story together and then we'll finish with some, uh, with some takeaways uh, together. So let's, let's go through this story um, as, as we think about what it means, what, what, what has Habakkuk learned in this journey to believe God who claims to be good, who he believes to be good, and yet there's so much evil and tragedy in the world that he knows. What I want you to see and the way I want to kind of structure this is there are basically two questions that Habakkuk asks of God that he responds to. And the first of which is, where are you? And the second is, why are you doing this? Where are you and why are you doing this? These two questions control the dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Let's, let's consider the first. Where are you? In verse two, this is how it opens. How long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? What is Habakkuk lamenting here? Well, as he looks in the verse two and in verse three, what he sees is violence, he says, and destruction. And when we hear that from a prophet, we often think of like outsiders, like there's not evil in the camp, there's evil outside of the camp. But what I want you to see is he's talking about evil in the house. He's talking about awful things happening at home. How do I know that? Verse four, so the law is paralyzed. The Torah, the law, was for God's people. It's not for the Babylonians. What Habakkuk is complaining to God about is, God, do you not see your own king is awful? And his corrupt cronies are leading this people to hell, to death. God, you must see this. Will you not fix this? God, are you a disinterested spectator right now? Don't you care? <laughs> Have you ever wondered if God really cares about the details of your life? Like real nitty-gritty ones. Do you not care? This morning, do you find yourself lonely? Are you asking the question, God, do you not see how desperate I am for connection? Are you scared? God, do you not see this vice grip of fear that's suffocating me? Are you in pain physically? God, will you not relieve this? Are you annoyed? Are you bored? My time in seminary was a particularly challenging one for my marriage. We were in, I was in seminary for five years, don't recommend it. Um, two cities and three schools. It's not a traditional route. And on more than one occasion, late, late night, early, early in the morning, I was asking these sorts of questions. God, I, I'm here to serve you, man. Where are you at? I actually said that. We were poor. I've never been so poor in my life. And I said, God, would you please provide? And nine out of ten times, his answer was go to work. What was he doing? Getting me to RUF at ECU. Where are you at this morning? And where are you wondering the very same thing? Or at least you have in your life. This is the first question that Habakkuk levels to God. God, where are you? What's his answer? I'm here. Verse five, I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if I told you. I'm more attentive to your life, God says, than you can actually imagine. I am doing so much more than improving your circumstance. I am solving the problem of evil 
in your heart and in the world. How is he going to do it? Verse 6. He's going to use Judah's enemy. He's going to use the superpower on the block, namely the Babylonians, to do his discipline. When you see the word Chaldeans in this prophecy, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a tribe that would later be part of the Babylonian Empire. Where are you? I'm here, God says. Second question. Why? Why are you doing it this way? Habakkuk, are you serious, God? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? What I want you to hear is Habakkuk is not asking for information. He's not asking, are you eternal? No, this is a bold rhetorical, perhaps a question with some cynicism in it. One Hebrew scholar says this, this Hebrew uh, phrase, verb, are you not, occurs about 100 times in the Old Testament, almost all of which are between intense human arguments. God, Habakkuk is not approaching God with respect, decorum. He's coming to God as an anguished man. Are you... Are you serious? Your answer to the violence here in the house is to send more? God, I think you're contradicting yourself. You call, you call this a, a good plan? God's ways just don't make sense all the time, do they? When the communists took over China, they effectively sent all the Western missionaries out. And the knee jerk of the church, uh, evangelical church, was... God, what are you doing? 150 years of missionary work down the drain. God, why would you do that? Why, why would you let this happen? Had God abandoned the Chinese people? No, God just got local. In fact, a professor at BU, uh, Boston University, just this year, whose research uh, He's an expert in the field of like watching trends globally throughout the history of Christianity where, where uh, its numbers have grown and where, where its numbers have fallen. And in an interview, um, he says this, over the past four decades, Christianity has grown faster in China than anywhere else in the world. It's gone from approximately 1 million Christians to around 100 million Christians. God, what are you doing? I'm saving China. What I want you to see here in Habakkuk's uh, anger, lament, is something very important. On the second half of this very bold rhetorical question is something very important to catch. He says this, O my Lord, O Lord my God, my Holy One. You're like, okay. What I want you to see, and I'm going to show you in just a second, it is never an option for Habakkuk to stop obeying God. He's not going public. He's not blogging. He's not hopping on Facebook or his preferred method of social media to complain about God. That's not what he's doing. What is he doing? He's praying. He is wrestling as one of God's own. You see, there's often two views to, to, to sort of this type of uh, relation, relating to God. Like, on the one hand... It's like, man, that is a scandalous thing to say of God. Are you eternal? Like, are you serious, God? To be that honest, to be that bold. Like, no, 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 you need to tuck your shirt in, comb your hair, and, and be a bit more polite. 
That's one side. Uh, uh, our culture today, uh, culturally progressive, we have tons of confidence in our ability to feel and our ability to think. We have no problem being polled with God or anyone. But as soon as we get an answer we don't like, what do we do? We run, we leave, we're out. What do we see in Habakkuk? With this phrase, oh my God, my Holy One, he is bold and he trusts. Friends, the reason he's so angry is that he knows he can't walk away. He's got nowhere else to go. He's in a relationship with God. He knows that if he can't figure life out with God, he sure can't without him. It makes me think of Peter, right? In, in John chapter 6, when uh, lots of Jesus' followers have left him, he's saying things they just cannot get behind. And he turns to his 12 and he says, are any of you going to leave? The Savior of the world says that. And Peter looks at him and recorded in John chapter 6 and says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is Habakkuk's posture, or rather Peter had Habakkuk's posture. Where else can we go? Where are you, Lord? I'm here. Why would you do that to save you? Wrestling with faith. And this is how in the story, even though it's not the end of the prophecy, what do we see God say? And this is where I want to hit probably the most famous verse of this text. Chapter 2, verse 4. God says this, responding to Habakkuk. His soul is puffed up, but the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk, the plan looks and feels like death. In fact, it is for many, but for you it will be life. Faith will be the buoy for you in the midst of the storm that's brewing. In this hour of Judah's greatest crisis, Habakkuk declares the person of God will live by faith and he will survive. That's the story. Can you relate to any of that? I can. So now I've got some takeaways for us. I have five. I promise they're short. But they just rip right off the page here. Here's the first one. God is not threatened by your doubt. God is not threatened by your doubt. What I want you to see is that Habakkuk, as he complains and laments to the God of his soul, God does not run. In fact, God leans in. God doesn't say, how dare you speak to me that way? He, he does not say that. Instead, he listens. He actually responds. Right? Did you get that, that whole exchange? Like, you're not going to believe if I told you. Try me. No. I told you. He leans in. God is not threatened by our doubt. Our doubt in Christ does not reveal new information to him. Where are you? I, I see it all. And it actually draws him close. You see, why does God keep engaging Habakkuk? Because God is not his God and he's not your God because you put on a happy face. He's not our God because we have emotional self-control. He's not our God because we do the right thing. He's only our God because of the grace of his covenant, because of the blood of his covenant. And Habakkuk seems to know something of this grace. This is the source of his courage. So with this first takeaway, like, are you willing to let those people in your life, perhaps in Christ or struggling uh, on the edges of him, to actually wrestle with God? 
your kids, your coworkers, your friends? Are you, can you not give a quick answer and say something like, man, that, that's a good question. I'd love to hear more what you think about that. Do you feel threatened when, when you think you should be? God is not threatened by Habakkuk's doubt. Second, God's use of evil is not his endorsement of it. We didn't think, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't go into this chapter, but I'm going to do it super quick right now to prove this point. God's use of evil and disciplining his people is not an endorsement of it. For much of chapter 2, God levels what, what, what amount to be five woes, which in biblical language is a covenant curse. It is, it is, it is a death arrow at those people he has used as an instrument of his redemption. Briefly, what is he judging them over? The first and second woe are about uh, unjust economics. The wealthy only, using, only lending money at super high interest rates, keeping people impoverished. The third is, is slavery, treating humans like animals. He's judging them for that. Fourth, he's judging their debaucherous leadership, getting drunk and this orgy-like picture. He's judging them for that. And then finally, he's judging them because they have trusted in their power, the power of their military might. Friends, God's use of evil is not his endorsement of it. It's rather a reminder that he controls even it, though we brought it here. Third, faith is the gift of redemptive memory. Faith is the gift of redemptive memory. Habakkuk's faith comes through in this poetic memory of Exodus chapter three, or excuse me, in chapter three of the Exodus. I didn't read all of it, we just caught a snippet of it. But what Habakkuk's response to this lip-quivering message is he's given the ability to recall the work of God's character in the world, specifically the Exodus. Y'all, the Exodus is a paradigm. You can't understand the cross until you understand the Exodus. And he gets him there, and he begins to sing about it. This is a, a song in the middle of a prophecy. And he says, this is what my God is like. Faith in your life is the ability to see God's work in the past. I think this is your past, my past, your past, left, right. It's to see what he's doing in your life. It's the evidence of it. It's the gift to remember his presence in our pasts. It's like, it's like Habakkuk goes immediately to the highlight reel of God's work <laughs> in his life to help him see. I got to play golf with a few guys a few days ago from church, one of whom was Matt Sterling, who's a really good golfer, sorry. Um, and I had played a really bad hole, which is normal. And um, I had missed a putt, but, but I thought I'd done everything I needed to do to make it. And we're walking off the green and, and Matt says to me, go on to the next hole. And in his quiet confidence, that simple phrase, going to the next hole, he's played enough golf his whole life, actually, that there's going to be more bad holes. There might be a few good ones, but I know there's going to be another hole. I know that there's going to be another opportunity. I know, based on the past, that we've got more to play. Friends, that is faith, remembering the past to live in the future. It's like back to the future, Right? It's, 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 our faith is living into a future we don't yet know based on the work of God in the past. So faith is a gift of redemptive memory. 
Fourth, two more. Pray for trust, not a better life. The circumstances for Habakkuk were awful. And it's because of the grace of God at work in Habakkuk's life that he does what at the very end? He begins to rejoice. The very end of the, of the prophecy literally is a picture of everything's dead. No food, no animals, nothing. Yet I will rejoice. His prayer isn't that life would now get better, though he has honestly lamented that. But he's learning to trust. One pastor wrote this this past week, and it just, it's like he was reading my own journal. It, it, it was like this. I know the plans I want from you, Lord, says me. It's a story of minimal pain and disruption, of plenty of creature comforts, but not to the point of grandiose. A life in which I'm surrounded by amiable, I don't use that word, but it's a good one, non-codependent, flexible, fun people, believers and non-believers, then I want to go to sleep one night and wake up in heaven. First self, 316. Man, what, what would happen? Like, can our, can our prayer lives begin to shift? Lord, I, I am at a loss for the pain that I have right now. I, I don't know what to do with it. And, I, and in case you didn't know, I hate it. Can you show me what it looks like to, to believe in you in the face of it? That's the picture of a follower of Jesus. Unless you leave this point and think, man, I gotta really work on my prayer life. Remember Christ himself? The, the ultimate Habakkuk, we're gonna talk about in just a second, who prays for you? Because his prayer life is perfect. Because he lived in perfect faith our prayer lives can actually begin to change. Jesus says what? God, take this cup away. Please improve a circumstance. If not, help me to believe you. Fifth and finally, pain is not the evidence of God's absence because it was for Christ. Pain is not the evidence of God's absence because it was for Christ. It is so easy to believe that awful circumstances, chronic or lingering sin in your heart, represent God's distance. If you're anything like me, we, I often believe that God is in control when my life is good, and he's out of control when it's not. You ever thought that? Those of you that have been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive know this to be true. Only in Christ do joy and sorrow meet. Only in Christ do we cry and laugh at the same time. Why? Because the pain we feel now is a reminder that it will not have the last word because it did in Jesus. You see, Paul was preaching um, early in his ministry, recorded in Acts chapter 13, and he quotes Habakkuk. He says in the middle of his sermon, I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe. Paul is teaching us that Habakkuk was talking about Christ, though he didn't know it. In Christ, the how long comes to an end. In Christ, the only righteous one lived by perfect faith, right? In Christ, the woes of God, the covenant curses, are fully leveled 
In Christ, Habakkuk's words, in wrath remember mercy, only make perfect sense. Life to you because it was death for him. Your judgment upon him, his righteousness upon you. For your life, the Son of God was forsaken, so that with his life, yours will never be forgotten. Friends, if you hear nothing, if you hear nothing but this simple gospel conclusion, would you know that the pain in your life is not the absence of our God? Because in Jesus, it has an expiration date. Because in Jesus, it is not out of control. In other words, if God's hand is upon you, you are safe. The disease, the estrangement from family or friends, the heartache, the, 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 the missed desires, the, the disappointments, the financial trouble, whatever describes you're not then great, you know, something less than good circumstance of your life, and even discipline itself from our God. It's finished. And so that we can know that the how longs are over. And as we cry them to our God, he works in us a faith that has been achieved in Christ. The faith that you want has been earned for you in Jesus. A faith to see what you can't. You see, Habakkuk's, and I'll conclude here, like any and all of us, we live life in the trees. We live life on the backside of a quilt. It's knotted, it's tangled. We see trees, we see individual issues, we see the things that, that, that are hard for us. And God, what does he see? He sees the whole forest. He sees the beautiful tapestry on the front. He sees everything. And faith, given to us by Jesus, is not necessarily to see the forest, but it's a gift to believe that it's there. That this isn't it. The fourth part of the story is coming. And the pain that we share in community with others is helping us to share in the sufferings of Jesus as we believe more and more that his suffering has totally eliminated the death knell that would be on ours. Habakkuk writes this, in wrath, remember mercy, and in Christ, that has happened. Amen.